Wiki Voices podcast where we discuss the ins and outs of reviewing FACs. With us today are Nuclear Warfare, Jerry1250, Matthew Edwards, Mr. Zania, Shoemaker's Holiday, and myself, A. Wadowitz. I'm going to have each person introduce themselves and tell a little bit about their involvement with FAC. Nuclear Warfare, could you go first? Hi there, I'm Nuclear Warfare. Um, my experience with FAC is limited to about a couple of FACs, which I've submitted, as well as regular image reviews, which we'll talk about later in the episode. Jerry, 1250. Hello, yeah, I'm Jerry. I've never taken an article as far as featured article review before, so that'll be uh, good, but I have done a, a bit of good article reviewing, and that's basically as far as it goes for me. Matthew Edwards. He's in text with us, so I believe Shu is going to read what he writes. Yes. I'm Matthew. I've written three featured articles and a number of featured lists, too, so I'm familiar with the process. And Mitch Zinia? I have at least 20 featured article candidates, only seven that have passed, or excuse me, eight that have passed. So I'm pretty well good with the process. And, and Shu? Um, I'm Shoemaker Holiday. I've written about... I don't know, six in collaborate or so featured articles and collaborated with other people. I have two featured portals and a lot of featured pictures. And I have a featured list, but not on my current account. And Julian Colton? Uh, Julian will be joining us from text today, so I'll read off his. Um, hi, I'm Julian Colton. My experience at FAC consists of about 30 nominations of which 23 have been successful, as well as about 200 full reviews. And I'm A. Wadawit, and I think I have about 30 featured articles. I'm not really sure of the number, and they're primarily on literature topics, and I've never actually counted the number of reviews I've done. Um, and so we're here today to um, talk about what it entail, what uh, reviewing a featured article entails, um, a fully comprehensive review. We probably won't be able to get through the entire review in the time um, that we have allotted to us, but we'll talk about um, what that um, process is. So the first thing we're going to do is talk about um, what FAs are and why we write them. Um, on the featured articles page on Wikipedia, it says that featured articles are considered to be the best articles in Wikipedia as determined by Wikipedia's editors. Um, so generally, as a shorthand, we refer to featured articles as the best that Wikipedia has to offer. Um, and those of you who've written featured articles, why do you do so? I write them to help um, for, make the Rhodes articles better and to make sure the project doesn't look like a total disaster. Um, so the reason why I've written the uh, the articles, the featured articles that I've written, are primarily because I was very interested in the subject, and I wanted to research it myself. But I was also very interested in sharing that knowledge with others, so that other people could look it up without doing hours and hours of research. Uh, I wrote primarily Gilbert and Sullivan articles of late, although I've also done several on science. Um, a while ago. Um, my first feature article was W.S. Gilbert, be which um, before I came here was pretty bad. So I wanted the um, Wikipedia article in W.S. Gilbert, a playwright which I rate incredibly highly, to really reflect his entire field, to um, 
cover his minor plays and not just the really famous ones, to cover his life from start to finish and not just his collaboration with Sullivan. So I spent a lot of time working with it with a few other people. Um, I was the primary primary, um, editor on that one, though. And I managed to get W.S. Gilbert up to featured quality, and it's probably one of the best short articles on W.S. Gilbert on the Internet now. So having done that, I was really encouraged to continue and try and approve other articles so that they'd be really, really useful introductions to the topic instead of just um, things that you might find on any other website. I think that Wikipedia allows us to really cover articles in a way that in a way and with a higher quality than most websites allow. Matthew Edwards says, um, oh, actually, Shoemaker should read that. My first featured articles I concentrated on were Degrassi-related because children's topics and Canadian topics are underrepresented. I always concentrate on pop culture types, even though some people aren't so hot on them, such as a Groucho Marx radio show and a website. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, featured article criteria, um, so we know what it is that makes a featured article. There are four basic criteria with sub-criteria within them. Um, we'll start with, I'll describe 1A through E. So, for example, 1A is well-written. Right. Its prose is engaging, even brilliant, and of a professional standard. Um, this means that at a very basic level, the article has to be grammatically correct. The prose has to flow from one sentence to another. It can't be choppy. All the sentences can't have the same structure. So, for example, they can't go all subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object. That's very boring to read. That's part of what makes engaging prose. This is probably one of the most subjective parts of the criteria, and you will see a lot of people opposing over this, listing what seems to be very small issues. But put together, all of these issues do make very good writing overall. And it takes a long time, actually, to figure out how to improve your writing. And um, user Tony1 has come up with a, a whole host of exercises as a way to learn how to spot small issues in writing and learn how to improve your writing overall. 1B is comprehensive. It neglects no major facts or details and places the subject in context. So this is one of the, the first things you have to look at basically when you review an article. Um, is it complete? So for example, if you're looking at an article about a book, does it have a section on the theme or the genre of the book? Um, those would be major sections that simply can't be missing. And um, the section on context, that means that the article has to be able to stand alone. You don't want the reader to have to read other articles to understand this one. And that's particularly difficult for science articles and sometimes for history articles. You want the reader to be able to grasp the subject from this article. 1C is well-researched. It is a thorough and representative survey of the relevant literature on the topic. Claims are verifiable against high-quality, reliable sources and are supported with citations. This requires a references section that lists these sources complemented by inline citations where appropriate. So just like every other place on Wikipedia, you have to have citations. But unlike every other place on Wikipedia, the citations have to be to high-quality, reliable sources. That means it can't be just any reliable source. So for example, 
if you're using if if you're talking about a history article you want to use scholarship not just anything that you find in your local bookstore but the best scholarship on that topic for example and a thorough and representative survey of the relevant literature on the topic means that you've looked at the major sources um, published on that topic not that you've read a single book so for example um, when I wrote the article on Mary Wollstonecraft, I did not read one biography of Mary Wollstonecraft. I actually wrote, I actually read every biography written about her. So that's what a thorough and representative survey means. Now, some topics are too big to read every book. So it's important that you figure out what are the important books to read. And we can talk about how to do that later. 1D is neutral. It presents views fairly and without bias. The neutrality policy is pretty widespread and understood on Wikipedia. 1E is stable. It is not subject to ongoing edit wars, and its content does not change significantly from day to day, except in response to the featured article process. So if you change things, and if you're going back and forth between ideas, trying to decide what to do as a result of the FAC process, that's fine, but not an ongoing edit war with people because you can't decide, for example, what to call the article. And that's like a three-week edit war. That's not acceptable for a featured article. Um, anything you guys want to add to that? It's it's worth noting that uh, 1C, well-researched, is actually a relatively new criteria compared to the rest of them. I think it was added over after a long discussion on the featured article talk page. And before that, lots of featured articles did not uh, feature, uh, follow this. And so many of them are now being subjected to the feature article review process. In some of the articles we've written for the Gilbert and Sullivan Wiki project, we've had to um, justify some of our sources. The Gilbert and Sullivan scholarship community is a little bit odd. There's um, five or six major books, maybe, but there's also a strong online research community where most of the major scholars have a lot of online content. There's several major websites that provide scholarly content, and much of this isn't really available in other scholarly literature. So we've had to do things like justify why a site is reliable, point out. I remember in one of them we had to point out things like this this guide to library science recommends this site as an excellent resource. And so it was considered an excellent resource for our purposes. So one interesting thing that was just brought up in, in the chat was about popular culture. And often popular culture does not really have like book sources written about it or dead tree sources, as they're often called. And so I was just going to start up the discussion on more popular culture, whether it be like television series or stuff from the 2000s and the 1990s. Often there aren't books written about that. The 1C criteria is relevant literature on the topic. And you're exactly right that for some topics, there's not going to be scholarship on it yet. So for example, video games or books that were just published um, two years ago, for example, no one's going to have written anything on it. So you're going to have to um, be very careful about what kinds of sources you're using. We haven't actually like a FA video game expert, David Fuchs, who's written, I don't know, like 20 FAs on video games. And he's become sort of an expert on video game sources, like what's reliable, what's not. And 
that's sort of what ends up happening at featured articles is that be people become experts on different kinds of things. And you tend to go and ask those people when you do reviews, well, what do you think of this source? Because as you're reviewing them, you, you might just not know. And even if you look around on the about the site um, information, you just might not be able to tell. Um, but it's true that every topic has its own set of sources that's applicable for it. Yeah, I want to actually bring up a question about one of the criteria now in this discussion, though. Um, for one e, what is the case in um, for stable? What if the um, if, like I know if rows rows can change, what's going to happen? God forbid that uh, it changes in five, in like two years after it becomes a feature article per se. Yeah, well, it would be expected that you would uh, with someone, you know. It, it, um, usually it's the person who worked on the article the most, uh, keeps the article up to date. Uh, so, for example, I worked on this article about this book called The Time Traveler's Wife, and there was a movie that was just released um, about the book uh, about a week ago. And it was interesting to see that uh, I had originally written in the article, a movie will be released in August uh, 2009, and someone came along and changed it to uh, the movie had been released. And in a couple weeks, I'll go through the reviews and add a couple of sentences to the article um, about how the movie was actually received. Because right now, there's a section in there about you know, who's in the movie and the writing of the movie, but there's nothing about the reception of the movie, which I'll have to add, because now the article is incomplete. Uh, but that doesn't make it unstable. Um, this, the stability criteria is all about um, the article at the time of nomination because um, basically when people review it, they have to be able to review something stable. They don't want people to be reviewing different articles, basically. All right, let's move on to yep. the second major set of criteria, which are it follows the style guidelines, including the provision of A, a lead, a concise lead section that summarizes the topic and prepares the reader for the detail in the subsequent sections. So this generally means that a lead will be in the article, usually about two to four paragraphs long, and it will cover every major point listed within the article. And a fact cannot be mentioned in the lead that isn't found somewhere else within the article. Two, to be rather, appropriate structure, a system of hierarchical section headings and a substantial but not overwhelming table of contents and so this generally means that the article has to be like structured well all the major topics have to be covered in some sort of organized fashion and to see consistent citations where required by criterion 1c consistently formatted inline citations using either footnotes or harvard referencing see citing sources for suggestions on formatting references. And for articles with footnotes, the meta site format is recommended. So all this generally means is that you need some sort of, foot, of footnotes or Harvard referencing system. Generally, footnotes are preferred within the article, but Harvard is, the Harvard format is also acceptable. And as well, the whole thing with it follows the style guidelines, that refers to the vast but very useful Wikipedia colon manual of style, which is um, the manual of style that applies to all Wikipedia articles. Shortcut WP 
colon MOS. Before we move on, I just want to note that David Fuchs has just joined us. David, if you want to do a small introduction about yourself and any experience you have with the featured article process. I'm David Fuchs. Sorry for dropping in. Um, I'm somewhere above a lot of it, I think, on the list of Wikipedians by number of featured articles and below, I think, Yellow Monkey. So I've been writing feature articles for a couple of years. Um, mostly it's on pop culture, video games. Recently I've been doing Star Trek films, but also natural history, history, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's me. Carry on. All right. So um, the images criteria, who is right. going to go over that? Criteria three, images. It has images that follow the image use policy and other media where appropriate with succinct captions, brief and useful alt text when feasible, an acceptable copyright status. Non-free images or media must satisfy the criteria for inclusion of non-free content and be labeled accordingly. This one actually refers to a couple other policies, the image use policy and the non-free content criteria. The long story short is that image, images used on Wikipedia, if they are not covered under fair use, which I'll come back to in a minute, must be licensed under a license that allows commercial use. It must be appropriately documented where they come from. That's the main details of it. However, sometimes for some articles, it's just not possible to get a free a image that can be used commercially that's completely that's free enough for Wikipedia purposes. So we allow fair use. It's a bit broader legally than it is on Wikipedia. On Wikipedia, we're a little bit more stern with this. Instead of just allowing fair use under a legal definition, we require that there it would be impossible to get a non-fair use image. For instance, a book cover of a book that's been published in 1950, there aren't going to be any non-fair non use images, unless you made one up yourself, which isn't really relevant to the subject. However, a book cover of a, of a book published in 1890, you're probably going to be in trouble if you try to um, push through a, a modern 2008 Penguin edition. Not that people haven't tried. Um, I believe that Abu Duit has done quite a lot of work on this, so I think I'm going to hand over to her for the next to discuss this. It is worth um, actually noting that this is the only FA criteria that does not mention anything about quality. There is nothing requiring featured articles to have high quality images um, at this time. Um, everything else does have to be high quality. The writing, the sourcing, the structure, everything like that. The images at this point in time do not have to be. They simply have to be um, copyright acceptable. Although that sometimes extremely difficult and the laws governing copyright are difficult to sort of navigate through, um, that is the only thing that the images have to satisfy at this point. 
So that's where we are with images. Of course, if you have high quality images, that makes the article look that much better um, on the internet where people look at pictures first and words later. Criteria number four. That's for me. That's for you, okay. Number four is length. And also, even though it's not exactly shown that way, it's also in terms of broadness, I'm going to say in this case, because I can't think of the right word. Length and its detail is it stays focused on the main topic without going into unnecessary detail and see summary style, for example. This basically means you don't want to start writing stuff and going into details that aren't exactly related to the article, the topic in, in case, and you don't want to exactly bore these people to death. So at that point, it's also possible to um, work on the um, article and a sub-article if it's necessary. And that's all that it is, basically, because it's a short criteria. Okay, so those are all the criteria. It's not an insignificant number. So when people go to do their reviewing, they actually usually focus not on everything as they go to an article. They don't try to keep all of those things in mind. So I thought what we would do is have everybody talk a little bit about how they review. When they go to an article, what do they think about when they think to themselves, should this be a featured article or how am I going to approach um, this review? So if we could start with you, um, Nuclear Warfare. What I generally do when I go to a featured article candidate is, since I know my prose isn't exactly of the quality, I generally try to go for the images first. And first I check the image review has already been done. But if it hasn't, I open up all the images and I go through them one by one. First I'll check to see if the source is appropriate, if the image can actually be found on the source. I'll check if the copyright makes sense, and that generally takes the longest time. Like sometimes it'll be claimed that a public domain image, that an image is in the public domain, when it might be, but it might also not be. So in that case, I'll usually write a quick note on the FAC page asking why the the nominator believes that the image is in the public domain. And I'll also like clean up the articles, adding appropriate templates and such. And I'll try to move it to Commons if at all possible, because generally you want to have images at Commons so that they can be used across the 700 different Wikimedia projects rather than just on the English Wikipedia. And interestingly, images are probably one of the things that nominators often don't think about when they're nominating an article for the featured article criteria, often like things will be there that like should be should have been fixed quite easily, but have been just missed because the nominator didn't, didn't think about it. Great, thanks, David. What about you? What's your reviewing strategy when you look at an article? I think, like nuclear warfare, I end up doing a lot of images stuff, especially if you've ever haunted. Um, Wikipedia talk featured article candidates, Sandy Georgia often posts plaintive cries for image reviews on articles that are ready to be promoted or archived, but haven't received that sort of attention. I'm not going to say I'm really that great at copy editing per se, but sorts of things in terms of looking for redundancies in prose, if something's not really accessible to 
someone who's not an expert on the subject matter, that sort of thing, are pretty much what I look for. Generally, I don't, I try and at least look at everything when I review an article, but usually that's rather infrequent. So mostly images and whenever someone asks specifically, I run through everything else. Mitch, what about you? I basically, even though I can, I can pull out prose errors, I can't write, I can't write good prose, but I usually take the article sentence by sentence from the top and start pulling apart what needs fixing and what doesn't need fixing. It often more than not ends up being almost 100 complaints per, so, because I, I just don't have the time or, or the experience in the top, topic subject to actually edit because I don't want to screw something up that may actually turn out to be true. So it's a lot easier just to pull everything apart and let them figure it out. And I don't usually support or oppose unless it's really necessary. Okay. Shu, what about you? What I normally do first is I sit down and read the article through. I look for obvious problems if a section is very unclear, if a section lacks references, if a section just doesn't have neutral point of view, like it advocate if seems to be advocating for one side of a debate where the debate clearly isn't settled in the academic sphere, then that's a problem, and we can move on from there. I then look at the what, what the references are. Even if I'm not an expert on the subject, you can usually tell if um, all the sources are web sources. That's probably a bad thing. If all if most of the sources are book sources, that's a good thing, and you can get an idea of it. There will be experts there available to review it, so you don't have to do everything yourself. But you can you you can try and find problems, point out problems with prose, mention things that seem that like should be covered but aren't, and generally just do an overall review. And Feature article reviews need a wide variety of reviewers. Okay, David, I believe you have a comment. Uh, um, well, just wanted to point out one thing while she was talking about web sources and the level of web sources. That's one thing that I think makes people uncomfortable about if they aren't an expert or something looking at sources is that, especially with pop culture, video games, especially video games, it's primarily now a predominantly web-based sort for marketing. There's tons of websites out there for reviews and such. So certain topics are certainly going to be more web-oriented. That doesn't mean that there aren't really good print sources that people should use. And I end up often checking LexisNexis or my local library for print sources. But it depends. So if you're in a more, more historical subject, it's going to be a lot more about, you know, books, magazines. If it's pop culture, probably the sources are going to be on the web, but that means that they probably deserve a little more scrutiny in terms of keeping with ethical criteria. Agreed. I was thinking more of my own sort of subjects. There are subjects where web sources are much more appropriate, but they do need to be checked much more carefully. Matthew? Um, this is Matthew Edwards talking. I haven't actually done a lot of FA reviews, but usually I follow the same sort of order. 
Mostly I checked for manual of style type issues and the MOS's various subpages, as well as any wiki project style guidelines. There are so many things to, there to think about that it can be easy to miss some. Dash usage is one to look out for. Overlinking, no break spaces are often the most common. I also look for my pet peeves, such as the incorrect usage of the word however when, when it is used to begin a new sentence or paragraph, or, and other glaringly obvious prose issues. When those have been addressed, I'll often go through the article again, scrutinizing the prose and picking out things. I don't tend to read other people's reviews because I don't want mine to be tainted. Oh, that's actually very interesting um, because I usually begin my process by reading the reviews that have come before. I read the talk page, I read the peer reviews or the GA reviews or the wiki project reviews to see what issues have been brought up, to see if those issues have been resolved, to see what perhaps subject area experts have said about the article beforehand. So I take that along as I'm reading. And then the second thing that I do is look at the sourcing. For me, that's the basis of any good article is um, good sources. Are they reliable or not? And if the majority of the sources are unreliable, actually I don't go on and read the rest of the article because usually it takes me so long to review the sources that I've already spent enough time. And then I'll just sort of mention all my problems about the sources and say it's just not possible because there are all these other sources available. And then generally I'll try to give the person some guidance about um, where to go for um, good sources. I'll give them examples of databases that they could use or something like that. Um, if that's in an area I'm familiar with. If it's an area I'm unfamiliar with, I'll do the best I can, but you can only give so much advice in an area that um, you don't know anything about. If I think that the sources are generally reliable, then I will start to go through the entire article and read it. Um, I actually generally tend to read articles several times, which is why reviews take me many hours. Um, I read it for structure and comprehensiveness, and I read it for prose. And comprehensiveness is something that's extremely difficult to figure out if you're not a subject area expert. It usually requires looking at some of the sources themselves. So looking in um, a book about the subject to see, does it cover major areas? Does it you know, cover things that um, the books themselves cover? You, know, you can spot check, you can spot fact check then um, if you have some of the books available to you in a library as well. And we've had problems in the past at um, FAC with things like um, sources not actually matching um, what the article says that they say. And so it's a good idea to do some of that um, spot checking as well. Um, and again, it does take an enormous um, amount of time. And the, actually, the absolute last thing I do was look at the prose. Because if all the information is really solid and you've got all of what you need, then you can start to look at, for me anyway, how it's presented. And that's one of the last things that I do. I actually rarely look at the manual of style. Um, I rely on other people to do that. I also look at the images last. Because again, those are things that can be fixed um, at the end. Um, sometimes I do um, only image reviews if, again, Sandy George is desperate. She puts those um, those cries for help, as David said on the uh, um, FAC talk page. But they're not the things I'm most interested in doing. I just know that they're very needed. We should also mention that user Eldgeth does source reviews for every single FAC that comes up, 
which is an incredible amount of work. She checks to see if every source is reliable um, according to Wikipedia's reliable sources policy. And so we should mention that there is someone who does that for every single FAC. Okay, so the article we're going to look at today is History of the United Kingdom during World War I. And there's a hat note at the top that says, the article documents the effect of the war on civilian and military life in the United Kingdom, 1914 to 1918. For information on the engagements in which its armed forces fought, see World War I. So this is really about the home front during World War I. It is not about um, the war. All right, so first we're going to talk about the sources. The first thing to do is look at the list of references on the article. There's a section here listed as references. So when I looked at this article initially, um, I was very happy with what I saw. And we should make it clear here that the nominator, Jerry1250, is with us um, in the, in the uh, yep. call so he can respond to any questions that we might have. So I started by looking through this list of books, um, and I was very impressed. We have things from Oxford University Press, Allen and Unwin, Longman, Rutledge, Widenfield and Nicholson, again, Oxford University Press, Rutledge. Um, these are all um, academic presses or very reputable trade presses. So those, those books that are listed in the references were excellent. The, some of the sourcing problems that I have with this article started to arise when I looked at the websites that are listed in the footnotes because some of the sources listed in the footnotes section are not listed in the references section. They're only in the footnotes section. So I just want to highlight a few of them. Matthew, which ones were those that you were thinking of? So yeah, I'll read for Matthew Edwards. Um, I noticed that some of the sources were encyclopedias, and I wondered how much they were used because WPPSTS, which I assume um, primary, secondary, and tertiary sources, says that encyclopedias are considered tertiary sources. And then he lists a few examples of them, the Shepherd's source and the Tucker source. Uh, these are the, an encyclopedia of World War I and a continuum encyclopedia of popular music of the world, media, industry, and society. These are specialist encyclopedias, though. So I generally don't have a problem with those. Um, especially if they're not used too extensively. Generally, you don't want to use encyclopedias like Encyclopedia Britannica because they're not specialist encyclopedias, but these are encyclopedias dedicated only to the topic. So, for example, this article is about World War One, so using an encyclopedia about World War One seems okay. I mean, you wouldn't want to use it, ex use it only by itself, right? But combined with other books here about World War One seemed okay to me. The question is about how... Uh... The references have been split out. Lots of pages use uh, notes for a shorthand, like author page number, and then uh, a references section for the full bibliographic information. And uh, what this article does and a couple others that I've seen do is they leave while there is all the books and print material, use the author page number. Um, all the websites are just listed only in the footnotes, and I was wondering, because I know an editor this to my attention that it seems it's a little inconsistent in how they're used. And I was wondering if anyone else had an issue with that, if they thought that it was kind of against usability or anything like that. It does seem inconsistent, but it does also seem to be the way a lot of Wikipedia articles are written. 
this is one of those things where I'm kind of like, Ugh, if it's consistent within the article, fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm not going to get all bent out of shape about that, frankly. There, we don't actually have a manual of style yeah, that, dictates, that, that dictates how we should cite things, which is actually too bad. Um, it would be good if we said we are going to use MLA style or we're going to use Chicago style and everybody use the same style because then we could say we could code all those templates to have the same style and it would make sense, you know, but we don't have that. Yeah, um, I just want to say with this particular article is that um, it wasn't something the the citation style wasn't something that was particularly well thought out to begin with, and it sort of evolved. So if it does look a bit mix and match, then uh, that's the response to that. And it was trying to find something that came across as better. That was the the problem, I guess, with that one. But let's talk about the sources themselves, actually, um, as I think that's actually a little more important than how they're presented. So, for example. Spartacus Educational, which is used three times. I looked around about this person. Their books all seem to be self-published, and they write about a lot of different areas of history. So, like, um, the person's books are on Amazon.com, but they're all published by Spartacus. And so is the person really an expert on World War One? is what I was asking myself. Because we really want to use World War One experts. Um, so I was a little unsure about that one. It really seems to be a self-published site um, by this guy, John Simpkin. That site did not seem particularly reliable to me, um, nor did it really seem to be um, a high-quality site. It was what we would really be going for with, you know, an uh, FA would be the high-quality sources. So I would actually take that source out. And so one of the issues that starts to come up when you have source issues is, is the information that's presented in the source that is questionable itself questionable, or can you actually source it to another uh, another book? So that would be what we, the first thing we would try to do is find the information somewhere else. If we can't find it anywhere else, then we got to remove it from the article. So that that's obviously going to take some time. Um, okay, so Nuke, what would be your next, your, your other source right. problem? Um, so there is a Current reference number 27 is sourced to uh, Professor Kent Soule, The Fate of the Romanoffs, The Survivors. It links to an Angel Fire page, which is essentially, it's kind of like GeoCities, I think. You can just, like, buy the hosting from Angel Fire. And it says that Kent Soule is part of the Department of Political Science at Georgia Southwestern State University, which is good, but... I still don't know if this meets the self-published source criteria. I and did so, look up Kent Sowell earlier today, actually. He's an emeritus professor there, but he doesn't even have a PhD. Which he was hired a long time ago when you didn't need a PhD to get hired as a professor, which it's just somewhat questionable. Consider so much published on the Romanovs. I mean oodles of books have been published on the Romanovs. I would think you could get a more reliable source uh, than that website. So you can replace that with something that's a lot better and where people, when they click on the reference, aren't going to go, huh, I wonder if this is actually the case. Yeah, um, so that one I, I'm not too attached to either. I, I agree with what you've, you've said about well, everything really on that one, Angel Fire. Yeah, so in short, I 
took straight from George V uh, in the United, of the United Kingdom, straight from that featured article, pretty much verbatim, a selection of references for the Romanovs and so forth. And I just assume that the that featured article would be up to the same standards of referencing and so forth that this article would have to be for the modern criteria. Yeah, I think that brings up a really important point that you can't necessarily rely on old featured articles or actually current featured articles when you think about it. Old ones because they may not meet the new standards, like we were talking about the well-researched standards with high quality reliable sources is a new standard. And you know, reviewers might have missed something in an old article. Reviewers aren't perfect. So it's good to keep in mind that you always want to check the sources you're importing um, from other articles. Don't we wish we had perfect reviewers <laughs> and perfect writers, but we don't have that. Okay, so let's look at some of these other source problems. Source number 14, digitalsurvivors.com, which describes the 1839 treaty. This is not a reliable source. Um, notice that the description of the author is, Scott Manning is a business analyst working for a software company in the Philadelphia area. He has a passion for history and is currently working at a bachelor's degree in military history. This is a self-published source, and Scott Manning, the business analyst, does not have any expertise in World War I. So source 14 and the information related to it has got to be sourced to something else there. we got to get rid of that one. You'll notice that it is actually referenced to another source. So if you want to just like see if you can find that particular source, it, like on the bottom of the Digital Survivors page, it says references, Sanger, uh, CP, and HTJ Norton, England's guarantee to Belgium and Luxembourg with full text of the treaties, New York, etc. Sometimes websites will be helpful that way and will give you information. Uh, Nuke, you also had some sources as well? All right, yeah. There was this other one called firstworldwar.com, and it is currently source number 41. It quotes, like, a primary document of, it's just essentially a law called the Defense of the Realm Act, but I can't find anything to suggest that this source is reliable. It's copyrighted. The copyright notice on the bottom says, Copyrighted material 2000 to 2009, Michael Duffy. If you look and on the About page, not... um, it actually tells you that it is not reliable. Um, it says, a word of caution, however, this is by no means an academic website. It's authored as spare time permits and is geared towards a general rather than scholarly readership. Given this, it is not recommended that this site be used for academic reference purposes for school or university papers. This is not so much indicated concerning lack of authorial confidence in the accuracy of site content as an acknowledgement that material on the site has not been submitted for formal peer review. That's crucial when it says it has not been submitted for peer review. And Michael Duffy is not listed as an expert anywhere on World War I. The essence of a reliable source is that it has been peer-reviewed. This is a good time to bring up a question that um, I've had. Mm -hmm. Because what this is source, this reference, this website is used to source to, like, the full text of the Defense of the Realm Act, which was passed in 1914. This is the sort of thing that could appear on Wikisource. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, could something be sourced to Wikisource? I think people go back and forth on that. Um, 
I think yes, um, but it's probably good to have another source as well. Because, you know, Wikisource okay. is, is also um, user-generated content in a way. You know, you're relying on users to copy the information correctly. Um, but I don't know how strict, you know, other reviewers are going to be about that. If I saw it, I'd probably say find another uh, something better than that because it's questionable. I'll be iffy about it. Um, okay, another source that I had questions about um, was source number 17, blacksacademy.net. I could not find any information about it at all on the site itself. Like, I could not get into the site to find out who wrote it or, you know, if there was some editorial review board or, or what it was or anything about it. So that, to me, raises flags that I could not even find out any information about it. Like, you know, by shortening the name on the on the HTML um, address, I couldn't get in, nothing. So I find that one questionable as well. Site or um, reference 40, the history learning site is um, also a self-published site. It says on the about page, Chris Truman, BA, MA, set up historylearningsite.co in 2000 as he felt there was no easily accessible and comprehensible website on world history on the web. The site has grown in popularity. It's now viewed by hundreds of thousands of people each month, etc. It's just written by this guy, Chris. And again, this topic, uh, the history of World War One, is very, it's not an obscure topic. So it's easy to find books about it. Just backtrack for a second, but I think looking at Black's Academy and messing around with the um, URL, I think actually it's supposed to be a pay site where you subscribe to it oh. and get these things. And it might actually be that this is just they did a bad job of hiding the site and you can just deep link to it. I'm not actually sure, but if I recall, generally we're supposed to refrain from sites where you have to register or someone can't easily verify it. Um, I think you're supposed to put in subscription. Don't uh, I think you're supposed to put in subscription needed. Like we're allowed to use things like JSTOR and LexisNexis, which are subscription, you know, which are subscription sites, subscription databases. Um, I just don't know anything about this site. If the the Jerry, do you know about this site? What is this Blacks Academy? Uh, no, I don't. No. I, I on when these uh, bits and pieces came up for the A class, I had a look myself, and I couldn't get any further than you on that one. So then my other one was history of war, which is dot dot org, which is reference number fifty-seven. Mm-hmm. And so that one, the about page. Yes, it says on the about page that only one of the authors is published and the other two are not. Again, this to me illustrates that it's not, you know, a high-quality, reliable source. It's sort of a borderline source. And again, since we're talking about a featured article here, we'd want to use a much um, better source than this. Again, we're looking about, we're looking at a topic on World War One, in which so much is published. We don't need to rely on, an, on a website where two of the authors are unpublished. Well, furthermore, it says in how to cite the article, Rickard J. as the 
author, so you probably couldn't even get it to fly for as a self-published source. So, looking at the about page, it looks like the three authors of the site, none of them are like have degrees that are related to World War One. One is has several books published on World War Two. The other has a degree in like strategic studies, and the final one has like medieval history. So none of those are related to World War One. So I don't think this one flies. Okay, so we have some sourcing concerns in general, which we would outline point by point and say, you know, this is what we read about the site. This is why we think it's not reliable. This is why you need to replace it. Um, as I was doing uh, my sourcing review, I actually also came across some problems of content in the article because I could see the source that was being used. So I'll just give some examples of that. So for example, um, in the Royal Navy section um, of the article, the source, which comes from um, a Royal Navy page, like a, a history of the Royal Navy by itself, uh, a Royal Navy website, the, artic um, the Wikipedia article says this. In German terms, Jutland was a victory as they had suffered fewer losses in men and ships. In August 1916, the high seas fleet tried another similar operation and was lucky to escape annihilation. The lessons learned by the Royal Navy at Jutland made it a more effective force in the future. This is what the source says. In German terms, Jutland was a victory. As soon as it could in August, the high seas fleet tried another similar operation and was lucky to escape annihilation. The British learned many lessons at Jutland, and was, which was studied for many years. As a result, it fought much more effectively in the Second World War. There's some language here that's much too close to the source. For example, the, there's one sentence that's copied exactly. In German terms, Jutland was a victory. And then we get the phrase, was lucky to escape annihilation, that's copied exactly. And we get, I mean, the phrase much more effectively using the word effective, maybe that's okay, but those other two are not. They need to be reworded or they need to be put in quotation marks. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I would have uh, changed that myself if I'd noticed. We, can either, we should probably just go do that right now. Um, I'll just put those in quotation marks right now. So usually when I see an example like that, then it makes me want to like go through the rest of the article looking for that kind of thing. But that means I would have to actually get a lot of books, which I haven't had time to do um, today. So this is actually something we started to look for a lot more closely at um, FAC, is are things that have been worded too closely to the sources. People are very worried about um, adequately representing the sources. And in that case, they have um, started to word their articles very closely to the sources. Um, so that's something we have to look for as well. Another thing that I noticed was that some of the material in the article is not actually in the source. So for example, at the beginning of the recruitment and conscription section, um, it says, in the early stages of the war, Many men, fueled by promises of glory, decided to join up to the armed forces. In August 1914 alone, half a million signed up to, to fight. Recruitment remained fairly steady through 1914 and early 1915, but fell dramatically during the later years, especially after the Somme campaign, which resulted in 500,000 casualties. As a result of conscription, 
As a result, conscription was introduced in January 1916 for single men and extended in May to all men aged 18 to 41. Now, that is supposedly cited to Britain and World War I um, at the BBC history site. And I was wondering if that's, that, that's not on the page when you, when you click to it. All of that information is not there. Like those statistics, for example, aren't there. Is that on a different part of the site, do you think? And maybe you just put in the wrong link? Or maybe we got the wrong note in the wrong place? That happens a lot when you're copy editing and stuff. Yeah, that could have, that sounds plausible. Yeah, so that would be like... Yeah, I don't, I don't see it anywhere. Yeah, I, I mean... I don't see I just, it on the other sites linked to the left. Yeah, I mean, I did try to read through that entire article on the web. Um, so that would be one thing we have to find, find it. Like, maybe we can go through the history and try to find where it is. There are a few examples like that that I've, I found of the information not actually being in the source. And again, when you find a few examples, you're kind of like, well, I wonder what about the rest of it? So it does make you want to sort of spot check the information. And along with the last sort of sourcing issue I have, the section on the poets, because of course I was going to look at the literary section, right? <laughs> the war poets. Um, there's basically two citations for that section. One's about the women poets and um, one's about the men poets. And the citation for the men, the men poets is for a 1914 um, newspaper. That can't possibly be the citation for everything that comes before that. So there is no citation for you know, who all these war poets were and what the themes of their poems were and what they published. There, there's just no citation at all. So, I mean, this goes back to, I think, copying from another article and summarizing what they had, and then the citations that they had in that article didn't actually support what they said, I think, maybe. Yeah, we, yeah, we had a, we had a I, I can remember that, I was uh, looking at that section uh, quite a while back, and we did have some, some pretty big problems getting anything referenced at all, so... It's not surprising that there's a bit missing on that. There's a bit in the um, HTML. There's a bit of a comment in there, I think. But some, oh, yeah. but says, uh, I don't think those <laughs> were reliable sources in the first place. So. Interestingly, it says references not needed for the moment. Uh, I'll change that to references needed. How about? <laughs> I'm not sure what that means there. References not needed. I'll, you know what? I'll add. I'll just add a fact tag there for that part. I don't think those references. I think there must be some better references out there, but they yeah. weren't available. I think we. I think that was a bit of a rush job for one of the reviews. I can't right. think. We all have those. Well, so I think that's why. So th those are some examples. Those are some examples of of sourcing issues and um, issues of you know does the article say what the sources say those sorts of things do they do they match up that um, we would start to look at. Um, uh, in the beginning. The next thing to, to think about is comprehensiveness and neutral point of view. And I know, Shu, you had a, some issues with neutral point of view you wanted to bring up. There's a couple issues to this article. First of all, it um, if, we, if you look, there's no mention of Scotland whatsoever. And there's 
and the only mention to Wales are the Prince of Wales. This may, this makes it very Anglo-centric. Furthermore, the Ireland is very, very poorly covered. This means that it's pretty much more of a history of England during World War One, but the scope is supposed to be history of the United Kingdom during World War One. Either the title needs changed to history of England, or it needs to actually co cover Scotland or, and Wales, or say why it is not covering Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. And I do know that interesting things happened during them because I've seen the um, coastal defences set up during the two world wars, some of which are from World War One in Scotland. I mean, it's you may be able to get away with not discussing them as much, but you can't really get away with talking about them not at all. Yeah, I did find it a little disturbing that Ireland wasn't mentioned more, especially be, um, because there was a like revolution or rebellion in Ireland during this time. Um, this Easter Rising, it's mentioned like in one sentence, but that to me seems like a big deal. Like they, it seems like they took this moment when you know the United Kingdom is at war to rebel, right? Very, and I wonder if that's not more important. It's it's only listed in the aftermath section. I mean, I could be wrong about that. This is not a, a period of history I'm I'm totally familiar with, and obviously, um, Jerry, you're more familiar with it than I am. Um, but I is is that not a significant moment? I wouldn't say that. Oh, well, I'm by no means an expert. In fact, I you're probably more uh, qualified on this subject than I am. But uh, absolutely not. No, no. I think. <laughs> I, I, I quite stumbled upon this article by chance, but um, I would say on the Ireland front that it is quite a, a can of worms and there is a problem with dealing with Irish issues. I know there have been, there's an ARBCOM thing going through on just one of the many uh, problems with that particular line. And also the scope of the article on that front, we had a, a quick discussion about the during the World War One part of the title and I think the the issue was not merely every event that happened between 1914 and 1918 in the United Kingdom but something which could be at least tangentially related to the war and I, I can understand the Irish bias and I, if I knew a bit more about it myself I might be able to at least uh, give it more time. Well as the article stands, why not just cover it as history of England in World War One? and because it, it's missing, it's not discussing the other countries at, at, at any extent at all. I mean, there's no real point to, um, to, to act in. I mean, so if you just change the scope, you would have a reasonable article, but if you're going to call it history of the United Kingdom. Oh, well, I'm, I must really disagree. I, I, I know, obviously, that I'm bound to have a certain Anglo-centric way of looking at it, but a, a lot of the prose, even if it doesn't come across as such, has an Im refers to impacts on the United Kingdom as a whole. For example, on governance and monarchy are things which affect the whole United Scotland Kingdom. Scotland has so. its own set of laws. Uh, yes, and no. Uh, not yes. Okay. It's okay, a, well, it I'm has not... its own legislative. It, we, we ha, it, it's always had its own legislation. 
it has its own judicial system and everything. I mean, it's not like it's not like the laws of the laws that apply to England and Wales do not necessarily apply to Scotland, and have to be um, have to be assigned differently. So I don't see how you could say that Scot Scotland doesn't matter and that um, Wales doesn't. I mean, you know, doesn't. If you want to say that it's pretty much similar to the other things, you can mention that, but you shouldn't just ignore them. You should at least give a couple paragraphs explaining the, the situation there, and then and putting it in context for them, and explaining how it goes on to, you know, ex, and just explain that most of it is similar to this. Here's how it's different. I don't, I, I, I wouldn't know how to reply to that i i guess there are it's it's by no means perfect but i don't think that the problems are so significant i think as you but that's my well it, my if point it doesn't cover them it maybe has, we could we could point to a specific example uh that that might help so for example in the recruitment and, and conscription section it it talks about what specifically recruitment and conscription meant and then it ends by saying this legislation did not apply to Ireland despite its then status as part of the United Kingdom but see conscription crisis of 1918 and then it links to this whole entire article um, um, about how the British government tried to conscript people in Ireland and how there was this entire disaster about it I guess I'm wondering why you decided to link to that rather than link to it and explain it in a couple sentences. That would be an example that I would highlight. Yeah, well, I, I don't think I can argue with that. I, I don't know so much about it myself. And I think the uh, other major contributor uh, to the article knows a lot more about uh, the conscription crisis in 1918 and might be able to shed some light on that one. And I, I agree. I think that should be covered. I mean, yeah. I think maybe it's just a, a an issue of adding a sentence, maybe here or there, you know, to to add some detail. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, there are places that mention, you know, what happens in London. So, what's happening in Edinburgh? What's happening in Dublin? You know, th those sorts of details um, I get left yes. out, for example. And if there's nothing instance, happening there's in Edinburgh section... or Dublin, we need to know that. You know, if the you know, the air raids are only happening in certain parts. You know, we need to, again, make that clear. For instance, there's a um, there's a discussion in air raids about the air raids on the east end of London, describing it in quite a lot of detail, but it doesn't cover... But I believe that... Um, I can double-check... Well, I'll come back to this in a moment. I just want to check a couple things. Um, which brings up another point for me on the na naval and air raid section. Being someone who's American, and I have to admit to, to being poorly um, schooled in geography, I don't actually know where all these places are. So I actually thought it would be helpful to have a map in this section. You know, I don't know where Scarborough, Hartlepool, and Whitby are. You, you other people who are American? Um, are, are Whitby's you in, in Yorkshire. Is it? That's in the north, yeah, right? I'm probably the same way. Yeah. Like, I could tell you generalities, but I, I, it would be very helpful to know, like, a map with especially the United Kingdom and also from Germany, so like someone could see how far the uh, the planes had to fly. Yeah. Oh, de definitely. I, I I could knock one of those up. I'm sure. Yeah, I think Given that would be a big help, actually. 
Yeah, I can make. I'll make a note of that, and uh, I can get on that. Yeah. I assume Fine. that, uh, like, I don't know much about like military history either, but I assume that there was there were no aircraft carriers at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, no significant, uh, or no ability to deploy in. There were a few, a few attempts, but nothing that could give significant additional range or anything. So yeah, they would all have to come from like northern Germany or maybe France and Belgium. Another minor problem is that it doesn't actually cover the experience of people very much. It um could use it. It could use a bit more discussion about air raid shelters. I believe that in World War One, a lot of people sent their children off to the country as they did in World War Two. Some discussion of that wouldn't be appropriate. Oh well, if they did, I haven't uh, seen anything about Perhaps it. Perhaps I'm so wrong. I'd have to. I'd have to look into that one a bit, a bit further. Oh well, uh, just this is just a tiny thing, but along the line, you were saying like us Americans who don't know that much about certain parts of British history in terms of geography. One thing that stuck out for me was that in the first paragraph of Social Change, uh, the representation of the People Act uh, enfranchised people that were, as long as they were over 21 years old and were resident householders, ensuring their voices were heard in Westminster. And Westminster A isn't linked, B isn't discussed as far as I know anywhere else. So I think some people would be – you can kind of tell what it is even if you – weren't aware exactly but it's something that could be made explicit and it would be a lot yeah. helpful for clarity yeah yeah I, I can probably change that now actually yeah uh, when i was looking at this i was thinking um perhaps uh women and the suffrage movement as well as social change like when when you think about those two they're generally like in the same topic i was wondering if maybe we could combine those two or like make one of them a subsection like uh, women in the suffrage movement, a subsection of social change. That makes sense to me. Yeah, that was to say it raises the question of whether women in the suffrage movement is um, too large, and whether there are things missing um, from social change. Um, because there was a, a point about in in the lead, I think it was um, of how World War One collapsed some of the class distinctions in in the United Kingdom, and then there wasn't, like, an extensive discussion of that. And I thought if that was really the case, that would be an enormous um, change in British society, which was um, a very hierarchical class society, in, you know, in the 19th century, in the Victorian era. And so I was sort of missing a discussion of that. Upon that myself, so, yeah. Yeah, I have to agree, because I definitely caught on to that. I guess it's just because I watched some PBS thing on it when I was a little kid and that stuck out even all these years later but I definitely think it's kind of missing something about how World War One was sort of the end of the Edwardian era and actually along those lines it just seems strange that social change and casualties came before aftermath it just to me it seemed like aftermath would encompass all of those I don't know oh, okay that's very interesting actually because I thought that um the way that was structured was like the more the uh like I felt that aftermath should be indeed the final thing because it talks about like the Treaty of Versailles at the end and stuff like that. So that 
that should be like after all the discussion about the war. But the interesting t- thing about structure to me was casualties. I felt that that actually could be placed a little higher up because um, it's more related to like the battles and such, which more which go along with like naval air raids and stuff like that. The history of the history of Scotland page, um, which isn't very well cited, but which is good enough for for our purposes, say, says that um, the um, collapse of the British Empire after World War One is largely responsible for um, widespread suffering in Scotland, which, including such things as Highland communities being disrupted by the massive kills off of kill off of um, young men and um, the poor working and living conditions in Glasgow and so on. So it does seem that it would be worth discussing the effects of the World War One in Scotland and that there should be some sources, but you know it would also help make it a all Britain coverage. And you know it may be worth mentioning Scapa Flow and that kind of thing and the um, major military bases there. I mean, the scuttling of Ger- the German fleet happened right off of Orkney as a, uh, the Germans decided instead of surrendering to scuttle their fleet. And that's kind of significant and worth. Maybe it's not quite proper the article, but it's better to, but at least would bring in Scotland to some extent. And I'm sure there's things you could mention about Wales and certainly okay. a lot you could say about Ireland. Matthew Edwards brings up a good point in um, text chats. He says, um, quote, It is also likely that the Belfast, Dublin, Glasgow, Glasgow, uh, Glasgow. Glasgow, and Edinburgh articles, or history thereof, um, have information related to this article. Maybe steal some information from those. That is a good point. And I also want to point out that like the bulk of this article is very good already. You know, like, the sections that are laid out here, a lot of them are very good and have very good material in them. So, for example, I was impressed that the His Majesty's Forces section did not go on for too long in an article about the home front, for example. And there was a lot of good balance to this. So even though we are picking on the article a lot, yeah. um, there's a lot of very good material here. Let's not forget That's to say that. That's actually a very like good thing to note because although it seems like we're ripping this article to pieces and that like it's an awful yes. piece of crap, it's actually really really good. Especially yeah, for an article of such a huge tweets. scope. Yeah. One of the things um, um, like, actually that I thought the article could cut down on a little bit and then use that space to expand on in other places, and but perhaps this is just my American bias, is I did think that there was a lot about the monarchy a lot of details about the monarchy, a lot of very individualized paragraphs about each person in the monarchy. And I wasn't sure that that was necessary as we weren't getting that level of detail in other sections. But again, maybe that's because I'm American and I'm like, oh, the monarchy, whatever, right? (laughs) So I don't know if other people had that impression as well. But this is, I think, the longest section of the entire article. Actually, there are some major problems with the aftermath section. It forget, it doesn't mention the um, the post-war recession, which we even have an entire article on the post-World War One recession, and um, 
Well, let's talk about inflation yeah. and the 1926 general strike and the depressed coal industry. That's yes, they could probably do to um, it was a very differential um, yeah, effects like Glasgow and the Highlands got hit very hard, London not so much. So you could do a little bit of discussion with um, a little bit more of a whole United Kingdom approach, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, something else that isn't really mentioned in the article is um, how UK, UK during World War One has been portrayed in modern media. Something that Matthew Edwards brought up in chat, and so um, he brings oh, yes. up like, the Chronicles of. In popular culture section is missing. <laughs> How can we forget? <laughs> of course, you need the trivial Family Guy mentions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that would be relevant. Well, bouncing off what Matt said, I mean, we don't obviously need a popular culture, but I'm sure you could might. I mean, I'm not going to say it's out there because I haven't checked for it, but there might be stuff about how you had, like, the Dada art came out of World War One, and something about how, I guess, in media that came out after the war, how that was reflected, or during the war, how that was reflected by, like, social attitudes or changing. So not necessarily how... World War Two or World War One, sorry, in popular culture, but more, I guess, a scholarly approach. So you don't have to just list media because that's obviously not what you want. It does seem that the um, music section is underdeveloped. I mean, it discusses. It's basically a summary of the of two of two songs. Two songs. Yeah, more can be done there. That's. At least, at least it needs like a like a, a a couple framing sentences. There are a variety of music. These included some of the most enduring are, but um, only mentioning two without putting them in context seems odd. I was wondering if this might be a good time to move to the image review. Yeah, let's talk about the images, and then maybe uh, wrap up by talking about the pros a little bit. Um, so, Joplin, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today, did an enormous image review that he posted on the top page of the article, Talk History of the United Kingdom During World War One." Oh, it, it, was, it was actually great. I mean, again, more assumptions on my part that things were right, and I didn't check them myself, so that's a lesson. And I, I think I managed to get onto, at least onto... Or everything that Japan raised, I think. Images are actually kind of one of the interesting things about FAC. I might have mentioned this earlier as well. Um, a lot of people just assume, oh, it's on Commons. Of course I can just use it. But, like, Commons, it, it's a wiki. It's not perfect. Oftentimes it's wrong as to whether things are in the public domain or not. And so um, what Japan did here is he went... I think there were seven images within this article. So what he did was he went through all of them and then checked the sources and then like checked to see whether they would still be in copyright because Commons requires that the image be both um, in the public domain in both 
the United States where the servers are hosted and in the uh, the country of home origin, which is which you don't need to have if you're hosting it on the English Wikipedia. Um, Jabalong also explained his entire method of checking everything, which is worth reading because he explains a lot of the details of um, image example. The first thing I do uh, when I look at images is I'll go to the image description page. Um, and I start to see whether all the fields are filled in. There's a description, which needs to be in English. There's a source, there's a date, there's an author, and um, there's a permission. So looking here at Tsar Nicholas II and King George V.jpg, we have a description. It says it's a photo of Tsar Nicholas II and King George V in Berlin, 1913. Now, sometimes these descriptions are obviously wrong, and that's... Um, a problem from the beginning, but this one looks like it's reasonable. These are two men, you know, that look regally dressed up. Okay, it says it was uploaded by some user who says the uploaded image is scanned from a photo in his collection. That's unfortunate because then you have to sort of take that on faith. To believe that this photo exists nowhere else but in this collection is kind of surprising. But notice how it says also here, Life also has this image in its archives. Okay, so then we click on that and we see the same photo um, and notice when we click on that it says first cousin Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and Britain's King George V date taken 1913 okay so we have some external verification of who these people are and um, the date of this photo it's good that we don't just need that we don't just have um, a user's um, data on this because people are mistaken sometimes um, or Sometimes they actually, believe it or not, lie about the photos. So then we have um, another date with a link next to it, which I'm clicking on. Um, the link is there um, with the date of the author. Um, in a, uh, it was published in a book. And then the author, who is the photographer in this case, um, I'm clicking on the link again that's been provided for the particular that one you have to log in to see unfortunately and it says here that the um, photographer was still alive in 1960 and then there are links to demonstrate that okay which means that this particular photograph is not going to be um, in the public domain in Britain but it can be in the public domain um, in the United States. I'm, I'm sorry, this, that this photo is not going to be in the public domain in Germany, where it was taken in Berlin in 1913, um, but can be in uh, the public domain in the United States because um, it was published prior to 1923. So notice that it has this um, tag on it that says um, that it cannot be copied to the Wikimedia Commons. That's been helpfully added here. Okay, so that's the first image. And I think that uh, Japalong um, did some editing to these, right? Yep. That yeah, he, yeah. Um, I helped uh, with the research as well. But right, yeah. yeah. He edited some. Okay, shape. so um, the second one here is um, of a cartoon, A Good Riddance, George V of the United Kingdom, Cartoon and Punch, 1917. And so the description now says, A Good Riddance, the king has done a popular act in abolishing the German titles held by members of his majesty's family. Cartoon of George V of the United Kingdom in Punch or the London Sherivari, Volume 152, June 27, 1917, by Various, edited by Owen Seaman. Notice this has the um, entire citation. It also, under the source, 
it says Leonard Ravenhill, 1917, A Good Riddance Punch, or the London Sherivari, London, 19, uh, volume 152, page 422. And then it has a retrieval date. Actually, so it, I think yeah? technically they had dropped the or the London Sherivari by that date, but it was well, used when you click the, on the Project Gutenberg link, it has the entire title, Punch or the London Sherivari. So Fair enough. they've copied the entire source as the link uh, provides it. So um, notice they've given the, the entire citation here um, down to the page number. This is very helpful. So when you, clink, when you click on the link to go to Project Gutenberg to see if the picture is there, you don't have to search through the entire text to try to find it. Um, that's incredibly helpful. They've given the precise date. Um, they give the author with, or the, in this case, the illustrator with the birth and death dates. Notice here in the author, it says Leonard Ravenhill, 1867 to 1942. This is particularly helpful because, again, this is not going to be in copyright in Britain and only in the U.S. because it was published before 1923. Once this becomes public domain in Britain, we'll know because we have these birth and death, or we'll have this death date here. Uh, so it's very important to include the birth and death dates um, in that section so that once it becomes public domain in other countries, we can add we can add it to commons, for example. That's yeah. not really the right, right template. If you use the... Um... P, uh, PDUS 1923 abroad, you can put in the year that it becomes um, public domain in its own country, and then it will automatically ask oh. for the thing to move to um, Commons. That is a very at useful that one. Time. So I'm, yeah, that is very, very good to know. I'm just going to switch to that. Yeah. It's something I actually made myself. But um, these images have to have a good description of what they are. Um, they have to have a very detailed source. They cannot just say something like Project Gutenberg. So, for example, this one here um, of George V in the Punch cartoon could not just say Punch. Um, it cannot just say Project Gutenberg. We have to know what volume of Punch is coming from. We have to know, you know where on Project Gutenberg is coming from. And also, for example... Um, if you're using a template that says this is in the public domain because the author has been dead for 70 years, you actually have to have the name of the author and the death date of the author to be able to use that template. So whatever information is in the template that claims it's in the public domain for that reason, you have to have the information that goes with that template. So for example, this one says it's published prior to January 1923. We have the date it was published, 1917. This idea that it was published in 1923 is actually very important. Some works were actually made before 1923, but they were never published. And so it's very important that they were actually published before 1923. There are works that were made, say, in the 15th century or 16th century. They were drawn or sketched or whatever, but they were never actually published. So it is very important that you establish that a work was published um, before 1923. This, for example, we know was in a magazine. So we know it was actually published before that time. Do we want to finish I'll up by talking about books. prose now? Actually, there's one other thing I want to mention about the images. Mm -hmm. um, this is not, strictly speaking, FA criteria, but there's um, it's an issue that becomes fairly often. It's on file, it is far better to face the bullets.jpg. Um, this is taken from the Library of Congress. But it's actually quite small, and if you actually go to the Library of Congress page, you can download a TIFF file, which is um, far bigger and a, therefore a better image. So it's useful to know the um, it's useful to know the Library of Congress format because a lot of 
a lot of images taken from the Library of Congress are much, much smaller than they need to be. And it's always worth checking. That's a good point. We can always do better, right, than the criteria required. They may not require yes. high-quality images, but we can always put them in. And actually, one this, last thing in about this the... case, mm -hmm. in this case, um, the image, the higher quality image, is actually quite trivial to get. You just have to download the TIFF, convert to JPEG, and you have a much higher quality image. So, worth doing. And one last thing about the images I almost forgot to mention is that there is a new requirement in um, the FA criteria to have alt text um, for every image. This is for people who use a screen reader or see Wikipedia on their mobile phones. Instead of seeing the image itself, they see this text which describes the image. So the idea of the alt text is to describe an image in words um, for people who are not actually going to be seeing it. So almost every image should have alt text um, in it uh, to describe that. And you simply add that description with in, in the image code and say alt equals. So almost all images should have that. They should not duplicate the captions. Um, and on the, I think it's Wikipedia alt page, um, they have some suggestions for how best to do that. So should we end up by talking about pros? Uh, yes. Okay. So who had suggestions about pros? I've got a couple general ones. Okay, why don't you go ahead. Um, well, I'm not, these I'm probably actually going to run through after this because it's worth knowing what are the issues, but I don't think I would ever inflict going through all these on any nominator because it's faster just to identify them yourself. But I noticed a lot of going through it, a lot of uh, redundancies, for instance, in order to, rather than to, you save two words and it's sort of unnecessary fluff. Then there's, I'm not the perfect grammatical person, but there were lots of, seemed like there were many howevers that didn't really add much to the prose. Um, like, for instance, in the second paragraph of the lead, sacrifices were made, however, in the name of feeding the enemy. I don't think it's necessarily needed there, because I'm assuming it's there because it's talking about patriotism and the whole idea is that it's it wasn't all fluffy kittens. I mean, you can go either way on that. And then there were just a couple, one of the big issues I see in a lot of FACs, and this one included, is just comma usage. There are occasionally no commas where they need to be, or too many commas, which start um, just making it a little more confusing to read. For instance, uh, when it starts, at the start of the war, the Royal Flying Corps, RFC, comma, commanded by Hugh Trenchard, and then it just, there should be a comma after Trenchard, but it, I think it just goes on without one, so it's missing one there. So just minor things like that are just catch you. But other than that, I didn't have particular issues beyond those. I think there's a user, oh, I shouldn't forget his name, but they have redundancy exercises, which I think are linked on the featured article criteria, which are really useful just looking at. Yeah, user Tony. Oh, yeah. 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 They're linked from the FA criteria, and just running through those and checking it against your article is a really 
fast and easy way for making sure that sort of redundancies are cut out. I thought maybe we could look at the lead a little bit um, to see how um, the writing stands up because I saw some some writing issues and the lead sort of um, brings them um, into um, high relief. Let's look at the first paragraph for example. The United Kingdom was one of the Allied powers during World War I, 1914 to 1918, and developed as a nation throughout the war in order to further its goal of defeating Germany and the other central powers. Okay, when I read this sentence, I wasn't really sure what developed as a nation meant. And this was actually um, an issue I had throughout the article. There were, uh, in every paragraph, there was about one sentence or so where there was a vague phrase. And so, like I have this list of sentences in, in my review that I would post saying I'm not quite sure what this means. What does it mean to develop um, as a nation? And, and here's an example, actually, I think of what you were talking about, in order to further. You could just say to further, right? Um, its goal of defeating Germany. Yeah. And the next sentence, on a military level, the country's armed forces were reorganized. The war marked the creation of the Royal Air Force, for example and increased in size because of the introduction of forced conscription for the first time in the country's history, though some p people, particularly Quakers, objected to this. This is a long sentence that has a lot of details in it. I'm not totally sure we need those details in the second sentence. So for example, do we need the detail about the creation of the Royal Air Force? I don't know. It, it interrupts with those dashes. We certainly don't need that, for example, in the middle of the dash. And then do we need this detail about the Quakers? Again, we're only in the second sentence of the lead. It seems to me that maybe we need to take out those details to get the basics of the uh, of the article down. This is one of those things that's very hard when you're writing the lead. You're like, well, how much detail do I put in initially? How much do I take out? Um, and needs to be revised many, many times. Um, at the outbreak of war, patriotism spread throughout the country. And it has been argued that many of the class barriers of Edwardian England were diminished during the period. To me, the phrase patriotism spreads throughout the country sounds kind of strange. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's just me, but it's weird to hear patriotism spreading. I think it's an issue with patriotism itself doesn't spread feelings of patriotism right. or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't. Patriotism doesn't have agency, <laughs> right? Something like that. Yeah. It, it, it's not an active thing moving about, right? Um, and it has been argued. You probably want to say who's doing the arguing, saying something like scholars have argued or some scholars have argued, that sort of thing. So that's the kind of thing I would talk about with uh, that first paragraph. And that's the kind of thing that's indicative, actually, throughout the, the entire article. You want to make sure that every sentence is crystal clear, um, that it's, it's not overburdening the reader, um, and that... That, that each word choice is precise. David is mentioning here in the chat that the article itself is 39 kilobytes. Is this a long or is a short lead for an article that's 39 kilobytes long? As I recall, it's supposed to be around, I should check that, but I think it's around 35 kilobytes is supposed to be three sentences, I mean three paragraphs. I need to check it, but around 32 kilobytes is two or three paragraphs. So it's not necessarily too about, long, but... Yeah, we're about um, four, but uh, Matthew um, Edwards is saying in the text yeah. here that he thinks that the paragraphs themselves have some extraneous information. 
um, like he's saying, if you if you chopped out some of the unnecessary information, the first two um, could be joined together, for example. So I think that in general we could go through the pros and take out uh, some unnecessary um, phrases and words, and we would actually cut down on that 39 kilobytes, which isn't bad actually um, for an article of a scope as wide as history of the United Kingdom during World War One. We're you know right at the sort of edge of not wanting to have more, so 30 kilobytes is really good. I think that in this sort of situation, it's such a broad topic that you could probably stand to be to be a bit longer than it would otherwise be, and it might be allowed to be longer than this, which isn't particularly long in my opinion. In a way, I agree with you because it is such a, a huge topic. How you know how can you really keep it short? But on the other hand, I really admire people who can write short articles on these broad topics because I know that in general readers aren't going to get through really long articles, and the more details we pour in and the lengthier articles we write is not really to the reader's benefit always. So I'm, I'm sort of torn between the two. I'm sort of like, yes, I want to have all that, you know, wonderful depth of coverage that's possible on Wikipedia. And yet, on the other hand, I want to make sure that the reader gets to the end. <laughs> all right, we're going to wrap up then. And everyone's going to sort of give a little uh, commentary about FAC and FAC reviewing. David, we'll start with you. Um. Well, overall, I think if you're listening to this, you'll have figured out that it can be a painstaking, nitpicky process. But I think you shouldn't lose the fact that even since everyone's nitpicking, that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of good content and a lot of good hard work that's been put in by all the people who nominate. And that's always something to keep in mind, that it's easy to trash stuff and argue, oh, this is all bad, you need to throw this out, but keeping a positive outlook always helps, I think, get things done fast and done in the nice manner that helps everybody. Mitch, what do you want to say? Not much, except uh, I, this press, the process as I've gone through a ton is getting is become more painstaking since I got my first feature article. About, I don't know, about three, almost two years ago now. I do wish I find someone with a cop who, I wish I could become a friend with a good copy editor, because apparently every time I ask, I never get one. Shoo? I think that this is a, I think it should be said, this is quite a good article. The problems with it are more of the, the problems with it are that it needs a little bit more work, maybe, yes, but it is pretty close to F. FA. So I don't think, so despite all of her criticism, I do think this is going to become a featured article eventually, and within a month. No more, not, not more than that, maybe less. And Matthew? Matthew says what David said is right. Even where people can nitpick, it wouldn't be at FAC if there weren't good things about it. With this particular article, I think it could become featured, but perhaps not in its first time around. Also, nominating something at FAC can be stressful, even for the initiated who've had to go through the process. Sorry, who've had a few goes through the process. And Nuke, we're doing little ending comments. I think what, I'll, what I have to say is um, mostly that, like, even though that FAC reviewers might seem to um, might just be posting all these what seems like trivial things, the the end of the thing 
at the end of the day, everyone knows that your article is already among the top 99.9% .9 of Wikipedia content, and they just want to make it just that little bit better so it gets to the 99.999%. .999 and so just remember, the viewers are really on your side, and they want to help you get the article to feature just as much as you want it to be featured. And Jerry says here, if he had one comment, it would be, before you go to F.A., sort all the niggling details that you knew were going to come up but hoped wouldn't. I actually think that's a really good point. A lot of people know what's wrong with their article, and they're just like, oh, I don't want to take the time to fix it. And a lot of times when we point out, you know, sentences that don't quite make sense or that, you know, have problems or paragraphs that you know, aren't totally clear. People are like, yeah, I know, I know. And, you know, usually you, you sort of know which parts of your article are strong or, uh, I'm sorry, the article you're working on, um, and which parts of the article are weak. Um, so the idea before is before you come to FA, yeah. really actually work on those. Um, and because someone will point it out, they, they will say, you know, I don't, I don't quite get what's going on there. And someone will point out um, weak sources, um, sources that don't quite sort of pass the bar anymore so um, we thank you guys for listening and please do review um, at FA I find it actually really fun to review because I learn a lot that I would not have known before because I review articles about so many different topics about that I would never have read about except for reviewing so that's a lot of fun as well so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you on the next wiki voices podcast